So as Jay said, my name is Chris. I'm Chris Saladay. I'm on staff at PF. And um, hopefully, for those of you who are pre-fraught, again, welcome to you. And hopefully, if you choose to come here in September, um, which we would lo love to see you again, um, but we trust that God will lead you to where you're supposed to be as you make your decision. Um, but hopefully, if you do come here in, in September, you won't be as clueless as I was as a, as a freshman in September on the true story. Day one, walking to 402, find her all, and walk into my room. I had five roommates, but then I had one in my room, so just, you know, get a double. And I walk in, and there on the wall, there's this massive flag. It takes up the entire wall. And it's red, it's white and blue. It's not the American flag. <laughs> but I look at it, and then my roommate, who I, I just now met, like a minute ago, I turn to him, and after looking at the flag, I, I try to figure out where is this flag from. And I say to him, Eric, are, are you from Cuba? Because it really looked a lot like the flag. <laughs> he said, no, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, but the flag. And he said, that's the Texan state flag. <laughs> <laughs> oh now, I'm from New Jersey, so I, my next question to him was, oh, do states have flags? <laughs> In the Northeast, we don't really take great pride in our state flags. <laughs> Anyway, so I trust that if you're a free frost you can be a little more clued in than I was. Although some of the freshman guys here might, will tell you honestly that, you know, there are some things about freshman year you're just a little clueless to. Um, depends on what they are. But I'm here tonight to talk about Zechariah. He's one of the minor prophets for this spring. We've been in the minor prophets, and he's the minor prophet that we're looking at tonight. We're going to hear from God through him, but, uh, and we're going to go there in a few minutes, but before we go there, I want you to consider a question. What do you do when you are discouraged? I mean, we all know this, life is like a roller coaster. For some of us, the highs and lows are higher um, than others, but we all have high points or peaks or joys, and we also have our low points, our troughs, our discouraging moments. And in those low points, those discouraging moments, we all have go-tos, things we turn to during our low spots, you know, when you get discouraged. So what are they for you? I mean, maybe you go to a friend or a family member, you lean on them, you know, they typically pick you up. Or maybe you go to a place of solace or comfort, uh, a long walk, for me it's a long run. Or maybe you like to listen to music or play music, you find a, 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 a piano in some quiet room somewhere on campus and play or you read a favorite book, or maybe you escape to some sort of distraction or pleasure, like hours on Netflix. Um, I know a lot of people here, one of their favorite places to escape is Ben Spoon Gelato. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe video games, drinking with friends. What, what, when you're discouraged, maybe you shut down. Uh, you have little motivation to do much of anything. Or maybe you do the opposite, you just push harder, you go harder. You go harder in your work, in your activities, in exercise. So what do you do when you're discouraged? And I think if we all took an honest look, we'd see we're pretty much all over the map, depending on the day or what's happening. And our text tonight is, like I said, from the book of Jeremiah. And so, <laughs> hey, listening, that's right. <laughs> it is from the book of Zechariah. Uh, he preached to a people who were very discouraged. 
And even though we're separated by lots of time, like 2,500 years, and we're separated by culture, I mean, this was an ancient Jewish culture, we're modern American culture, um, although 2,500 years from now, we're going to be a modern American culture, but th there was great discouragement in 520 BC for, for Zechariah and the people, his peers. Um, and the discouragement that they faced, they might have been different issues, but it, it's just not all, it doesn't feel all that different than discouragement today. Discouragement, regardless of the time and place, is universal. So, I mean, just a, some, you can go to the next slide, Stephen. So the discouragement that Zechariah and his people faced, yeah, well, thank you, Owen. Um, just a little quick run through to, of Israelite history just to get a sense of why were they discouraged. Well, in 586 BC, Judah, the people of God, they were conquered by Babylon. And then in 539 BC, you know, so they, they, the people from Judah were in Babylon for 70 years or so, that's, that's about 60, but the Persians defeated Babylon. And then the very next year, King Cyrus of Persia releases the people of Judah, Zechariah and, and others, Haggai, who we looked at not too long ago. He releases them to go back to Jerusalem. Great news, hooray, right? And then in 519 BC, like about 20 years later, it had been there for two decades, and Jerusalem was still in ruins. The wall, um, the temple was still in ruins. They had laid the foundation but nothing else. Um, the taxes were quite high. The, the Persian government was still taxing them. Um, because the walls were down, they were threatened from the outside from their surrounding neighbors. I mean, imagine, I mean, there, there's talk, right, at Princeton about a seventh residential college. Imagine the university, you know, levels the ground, they put the foundation down, you know, they invite like another 400 freshmen that year to come, and then, all of a sudden, they say, well, there's been a, a sort of a setback, and all we have is the foundation. We have these tents here. Just go sleep on the foundation of these tents. And then for the next 20 years, that's the case, right? I mean, imagine the discouragement. Uh, some of you are probably thinking, well, I'm a woman. I don't care. <laughs> right? But like that, this is what they feel. It's like all of this stuff happens, and it seems to be from the hand of God. They know it's from the hand of God. That's what the prophets are telling them. And then they're there for 20-some years, and it just things are grinding to a halt. They're setbacks. They're not moving forward. Is God with them? Is God for them? And actually, in Jeremiah, oh gosh, this is Jeremiah 4:10, it talks about how the, the people saw this as the day of small things, and that captures it so well. That's what they felt. They were living in the days of small things. Uh, later on in, uh, in Proverbs, hope deferred, this captures the, their, their feeling well too. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, discouraged. That's where they were. But a long fulfilled is the tree of life. They were living out the first half of that. And they thought, well, if this is what's happening, what's the point of living for God? And when we face disappointments, frustrations, loneliness, when things don't go as we hope or plan, when we feel like there's nobody looking out for us, we get discouraged, and we might just turn to the same type of question, like, well, what is the point of living for God? <clears throat> and God raises up Zechariah, and, and he gives him words of hope and encouragement to pass on to a very discouraged people. And God gave Zechariah a variety of visions. Actually, his book is almost entirely visions. God gives Zechariah vision after vision that he wants him to communicate to the people 
that they actually might be encouraged, even in the midst of challenging circumstances. So just tonight, we don't have time to look at all the visions. It's actually 14 chapters of visions. We're just gonna, I'm not, I just chose two of them, um, two really outstanding visions that Zechariah was given, with the hope that these two visions will still like you know, jump the 2,500 years and will come and speak to us and encourage us also today. Okay, so the first vision, you can go to the next. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. The first vision is a humble king riding on a donkey. So listen to the text, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from where the river and from the river to the ends of the earth. So in this vision, Zechariah tells his people, or God's people, that God is going to send a king. And therefore you can rejoice. And then he describes his king. He says, this king will come to the people. You know, this king will not remain behind the walls of some palace, but will come to the people. So that's good. And then this king will be righteous, not selfish or evil. That's good. And this king will be victorious, not a, like a weak loser. And that's good. <laughs> But notice, like, what, what, is, what stands out here in this description, this vision of a king, is that this king is humble. So humble that his chosen mode of transportation is a donkey. Not a war horse, not a grand caravan, but, you know, a small beast that typically works out there in the fields. And a few weeks ago, this is just a contrast. This a few weeks ago, Andrew Carnegie came up at our dinner table conversation. We have three kids, um, and every, our dinner table conversation goes everywhere. <laughs> and maybe it's because we live like a quarter mile away from Lake Carnegie, right down there. Um, so you know, of course, as we're talking about him, we decided to look him up. And as we looked him up, like on Google and Wikipedia, Henry Frick also came up, and he actually. New Frick Chemistry Building is the, you know, the chemistry lab here. It's named after him. And the fortune that he made also thanks to Andrew Carnegie. Now, Frick, we learned, was Andrew Carnegie's enforcer. This passed my attention in U.S. history. And at one point, Frick hired people, basically thugs. He hired them to break up a strike among the steel workers who claimed that they were not being paid fairly by Carnegie and the, the, the working conditions that they were facing were terrible. So anyway, the, I mean, you can look at it up. It's, it's, it's really interesting history. I mean, a lot of it took place in Pittsburgh, where I grew up as a child. But I mean, and you're familiar with this. There's a mindset among people who have power that they easily slip and fall into, which is, you know, I, or we must grow. We must expand. We must increase. We must succeed, even if we have to step on or trample on others to get there. And unfortunately, there are just way too many examples, way too many examples of this throughout history. I just gave you one. But now you come back to this passage, this vision, 
where God, he gives his power to a king, just like Carnegie gave his power to Frick. And it's, it's right there in verse 10. This king has the power to do away with conflict and bring peace, you know, to do away with the war horses, to bring peace from sea to sea. That's the kind of power this king has. But yet, this king's power and the, the plan is all wrapped up in humility. Which means that this king, he will not step on or trample on people to execute this plan. In fact, if he's truly a king of genuine humility, then this king must be willing for himself to get stepped on, trampled on. If that's what it takes to execute God's plan to bring such power, to bring his kingdom into the world. It's a striking description. This is a humble king riding on a donkey. This is the vision given to Zechariah and the people in 520 BC. Now, fast forward some 500 years, and you can see where this, is, where this goes, where this ends up. One week before Jesus was crucified, what does he do? He tells his disciples, hey, I'm going into Jerusalem, and I need a donkey. We don't have much, so we need to go borrow one. I know exactly where there is one. Go get it. And if the person who owns it says, what are you doing? Tell, tell them about me and that I need it and it'll all be fine. And sure enough, all that happens just as Jesus says. And then he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. And people are singing. They're waving palm branches. They welcome him into town. They believe that he is the very fulfillment of these verses from Zechariah some 500 years previous. And we call this Palm Sunday because of what happened. They're actually, I have a picture. It's actually, a, this is a photograph of, of a reenactment. Um, of what, you know, what the scene may have looked like. I, I put this up here because I just want you to see this, to think about this, to see the humility here. You know, if you were God's king, is this how, I mean, is this how you would come onto the scene? Think about the Academy Awards, the Oscars. Like, how, how did these people, how did the stars arrive on the scene? It's like fancy cars, red carpet, expensive outfits. They rent very expensive jewelry for the, for the week or for the evening. But how does Jesus make his grand entrance? It's on a donkey. With a bunch of, it's a borrowed donkey. It's a donkey that he ends up giving back. And it's some ripped down, you know, leaves are going to die pretty soon. It's not a red carpet. I mean, this is incredibly humble. I mean, this humility that Jesus has, it's just the beginning, because days later he'll humble himself even more, and we know this, he'll die on a cross. He'll become obedient to death on a cross. <coughs> and actually, go to the next slide, Stephen. We don't, we don't have time to look here, but if you read through Zechariah 8 through 14, Zechariah, he predicts this, and uh, chapter 9, that God's king would come and would ride on a donkey. But then, oh man, that's awful. <laughs> so, you're just going to have to believe me. Right? right? The gospel writers, both Matthew and John, they quote Zechariah on this very passage. Um, but then, Matthew sees that in Zechariah 11, again, remember this is 500 years before Jesus, uh, Zechariah talks about somebody being sold for 30 pieces of silver, which is the price of a slave, which is exactly what Judas did when he betrayed Jesus. And so Matthew quotes 
Zechariah 11 to point back to how Zechariah predicted this. Um, Zechariah talks about how everybody's going to look on somebody that they have pierced. And John, in his gospel, talks about how when Jesus was pierced, everybody looked on him. Zechariah predicts that in chapter 12. And in chapter 13, Zechariah talks about how at one point here's a shepherd, and when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. And both Matthew and Mark talk about how when Jesus is in the garden, then they come to arrest him, and the shepherd, so to speak, is struck. What do the disciples do? They take off like scared sheep, just like Zechariah paints this vision and picture in Zechariah 13. So you can read a, you can read the last half of Zechariah, and you'll see it's almost like a gospel. In fact, Zechariah is the book of the Old Testament that the gospel writers quote the most. Um, and these are just a few of the references. But this is the first vision of Zechariah. God's humble king coming to us on a donkey, betrayed by a friend for the price of a slave, pierced, struck, and his friend abandoned him. That's the first vision. Second vision, you can go to the next slide, see. The second vision is a filthy robe replaced with one that is pure. And the text for this is Zechariah 3. So, and Zechariah says, Then he, this is the Lord, then the Lord showed me, uh, this is Zechariah talking, the Lord showed me Joshua, who was the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side, ready to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man, Joshua, a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So in this vision, Zechariah, he sees the high priest named Joshua, and Joshua is standing there in the Holy of Holies. It's not mentioned in the text, but that's where the angel of the Lord would be. So Joshua is there in the Holy of Holies, which is the place where the high priest would enter only one day a year. And that's on the Day of Atonement. So this is a very special day. Um, unique day. And Zechariah sees Joshua standing there, and as this is happening, Satan, the accuser, he's about to prosecute Joshua. He's about to say something, condemn Joshua. But before Satan can even speak, the Lord breaks in and speaks up in Joshua's defense. So clearly the Lord and Satan are about to argue, or they are arguing. What are they arguing about? It's right there in verse 3. They're arguing about the fact that Joshua is dressed in filthy clothes. Or more accurately, these are clothes smeared in excrement. And in the Bible translators, I don't know why they back down from this, why they sugarcoat it, but they just throw in the word filthy. But when the literal word is that it's, it's excrement. And so this is unthinkable. Here's the high priest, Joshua. He would spend an entire week, an entire week before the Day of Atonement, getting ready getting cleansed, taking multiple baths, doing multiple sacrifices, getting prepared to go into the Holy of Holies. And now here he is, he's in the Holy of Holies, and Zechariah sees he's a filthy mess. He's totally unprepared to stand in the presence of a holy God. And as the high priest, you have to get this too, Joshua represents all of the people before God. Actually, can you flick up the, the priestly garments? Right um, so do you see these 12 stones on the high priest? This would be the high priest's um, garments and turban. And this breastplate has 12 stones on it. They represent, each of those 12 stones represents 
one of the tribes of Israel. So there are 12 tribes of Israel. So when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he literally was representing the whole community, everybody. It wasn't just him in there. Symbolically, all the people were there with him. And, and now Zechariah feels the weight of this moment. You can go back to chapter, go back to the previous slides here. Joshua is totally unprepared to stand before God. Instead of cleanliness, he's covered in filth. And I, and I want you to feel the weight of this, and because, because Zechariah felt how awful this was. And so I just want to try to give you a taste of how awful this would be to be in this situation. Right? Imagine um, you go into May exams. And you know your toughest exam is on the last day. I should say, you think your toughest exam is on the last day. And then, all of a sudden, the first day of exams rolls around. It's 8.55 in the morning. You're peacefully sleeping in bed. You think your toughest exam is like, I don't know, 14 days away or whatever it is. And then your roommate comes over to you at 8.55 and starts to shake you and says, wake up, wake up. You know, the exam period begins at 9 o'clock, and that's your hardest exam. You have an exam in five minutes, your toughest one. Right? You just get caught totally unprepared, and just that feeling of just how awful that would just, just be to be stuck into that, in, into that situation. That actually happened to me in high school. It was awful. <laughs> I lived a mile away from school, and when I realized that I was missing my exam, I think I did like a, a sub 430. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an awful feeling. Now you come back to the vision. Right? And then there's, what do you see? There's Joshua, and because he's representing everybody, there's you, there's me, we're all there together, and what? We have on just a filthy robe before God. We are totally unprepared to stand before God's holy presence. We might not feel how awful that is to be caught that way. Maybe we can't see how sinful we really are, and so we kind of dismiss that or we deny it, or we ignore how that, but that is there. That's what God sees. You know, in this moment, God gave Zechariah eyes to see what he sees all the time when he looks at us. He sees unclean, sinful filth. And that is extremely bad news to make us feel awful. God sees what we're really like, and no matter how good we might be at covering that up, hiding it from others, God sees that we're unclean and sinful. But thankfully, there's good news here. Even right here in this passage, before the accuser can speak and prosecute Joshua, you know, slam down the guilty, you know, verdict, the Lord shuts him up. And the text says, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. And isn't that just a great moment? That God doesn't let the accuser utter one single word, not one, of condemnation. And then Zechariah's vision continues. You can go to verse 4. Next one. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his, Joshua's filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. The filthy robe is removed at God's command. A new and clean robe is given at God's command. And mind you, this is more than just a wardrobe change. I mean, you hear it right there. Somehow God is removing Joshua's sin, our sin. Verse 4, Behold, I have taken away, not just your filthy garments, but I have taken away your sin. What better news to 
anyone here than that, behold, God says, I have taken away your sin. How can God do this? How can God see the filth of our sin and take it away? I mean, just like you're taking off a jacket. It's like something we do every day in the wintertime. God just takes it away. And this is the climax of Zechariah's vision. Verses 8 and 9. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So Joshua there, he's a symbolic sign intended to point people to somebody else who's going to come after him. And then God calls this somebody else, my servant, the branch. And this branch will accomplish something extraordinary, something that Joshua and every other high priest before him couldn't do, which is that this branch, this priest, will remove the sin of this land in a single day. You know, you see, Joshua as a priest, what he does is he covers over the people's iniquity through the sacrifice. That's what atonement means, cover over. Whereas here, the branch is removing people's sin. Joshua and the other priests, they made sacrifices day after day, generation after generation. Their sacrificial work on behalf of the people and themselves, it was never finished, it never ended. Whereas the branch will make one decisive sacrifice and will remove the sin in a single day. And there's only one person who can fulfill this great expectation. It could be the branch, and this again is Jesus Christ. In fact, some of you know what the name what the name Joshua means. The name Joshua means the Lord saves. And of course, the Greek version of that Hebrew name, the Greek version is Jesus. Joshua and Jesus are the same name, just you know, slightly changed because of different languages. So even in his name, Joshua the high priest that we've seen in this vision, he's pointing to a better Joshua, a greater Joshua to come. A Joshua who will decisively and definitively remove our sin from us and rip it off like a filthy garment to be discarded. So, those are the two visions. Let's circle back to where we started. How do these two visions bring encouragement to a discouraged people? How can they bring life and hope in all circumstances, wherever you're at? So some brief thoughts. These are just brief thoughts. I'm sure you can think of others, and if you'd like, you can share it with me later. I'd love to hear it. So one, God takes care of our greatest need, our need for forgiveness. And it is fully ours in Christ. I mean, of course, we're typically encouraged by our circumstances. This is, this is who we are as, as human beings, as creatures. You know, when we get a summer internship, it's encouraging. A relational conflict that gets resolved. Somebody we love is healed from sickness. A promotion at work. A dream vacation. You know, we all have desires and we long for them to be fulfilled. And when they are, we're encouraged. And when they're not, we tend to get discouraged. These circumstances will come and go in the ups and downs of life. But Zechariah's vision reminds us that we have a greater need that towers above all of these. To be able to stand before God, forgiven, clean, and with great confidence. 
And God has given that gift to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And there is nothing, nothing that can take that gift away. Not even the great accuser himself, Satan, can take that gift away from us. And this should bring just deep, profound encouragement, even in the midst of challenges and difficulties in life. Yes, we can go to God as our Heavenly Father, and we can pray for, for anything to Him. We can ask Him for our daily bread to grant the desires of our hearts. And He frequently does. It's a generous Heavenly Father. But even if He says no, or yes and no, yes and no, He has said a resounding yes to us in Jesus Christ for forgiveness for our sin, our greatest need. So hopefully that brings you encouragement too. Our humble king, he came because he is for us and for our good. When our life circumstances are not what we would script for ourselves, we should not conclude that God must not be for us, or God must, must not be looking out for my good. That's what the people of Zechariah's time and day did. They said, look at this temple, 20 years, no progress. It's just coming to a halt. Where is God? He must have left us. He must not care about us discouragement. It, it's just so easy to go there. I mean, it just takes a minute. Not 20 years, it takes a minute. And in their discouragement, they were given this vision that God, he does care for them. He is going to uniquely come to them and he's going to come to them as a humble king on a donkey. And he's going to be among them to redeem and to save. And then we, we've seen this vision fulfilled in Christ. So when circumstances were difficult for us, and we're inclined to think God must not care about us, he must not be for us, then we need to say, if God didn't care about me, or he's forgotten about me, then why did Jesus, my humble king, humbly serve me by dying for me? I mean, even think of this logic. Look, my friends, they show love for me. They, they show that they care about me when they sit beside me for an hour and help me with my problem set. How much more does Jesus care about me? He doesn't give me an hour of problem set time. He gives me his very life. We don't doubt when our friends serve us in a variety of ways, that they care about us and love us. So then why do I doubt that Jesus actually loves me, cares about me, and is for my good? He stopped breathing because he loves me. For my good. So that reality is an extraordinary encouragement to those who know Jesus and who believe in him, that Jesus would do that for us. What love, what sacrifice, what humility. And finally, just in closing, we're about to sing this song. I thought I would read uh, the lyrics to the next song that we're going to sing, because it, it brings all of these things together so well. This is before the throne of God above. Listen to this, and hopefully this is an encouragement to you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, 
upward I look, and I see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood, my life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Let's pray. God, thank you for each one here. And Lord, you see where they are, whether right now they are encouraged or discouraged, and wherever they're at, you see where they are. And may you come to us tonight and encourage us. May what you've done and who you are bring great encouragement to us, that you are a good and humble king. May that encourage that you see the sin and filth of our lives, we can't hide it as much as we might try, and yet you love us and are devoted to us and can remove that, and have removed that by faith in you, decisively and definitively, once and for all. And may that encourage us. Lord, please, we ask that you would meet us where we're at, encourage us in song, with your truth, in prayer, fellowship together. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.